But this morning, we're in Hebrews chapter 10 once again, and starting next week, we'll be in Hebrews 11. And many of you know Hebrews 11 well. That's a, a very famous passage among Christians and those who know the Bible. And, and um, I expect for us to spend a number of weeks there in Hebrews 11. And so we won't do that in just one week, but we'll spend several weeks there. But this passage works its way up to it. So Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19, this is what we read. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. O Lord, we pray that you would be with us. Would you send your Spirit among us and grant that we might see and understand and believe your gospel here in your very word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If I only had, it would change everything. Fill in the blank. If I only had, it would change everything. You've got something that you want to put in the blank there. I know you do. You you probably have a number of things there. For some of you, it's more. If I only had more time, then I could do all the stuff that I want and think that I need to do. If I only had more time, it would change everything. 
For some of you, maybe it's opportunity. If I only had more opportunity, then I could really show people what I could do, what I'm capable of, but I just don't have enough opportunity. If I only had more, it would change everything about my life. Or maybe it's more education. You know, if I had that, then I could show people how smart I really am and how credible I am and and how uh, important I am to society. Or maybe for you it's the old mainstay, of course. I mean, who is it not this for? If I only had more money, it would change everything. I could do all the good things I'd like to do. Of course, I'd build an orphanage and I would feed the hungry. And I mean, maybe I'd go on a vacation, but I'd really do good stuff for other people, right? If I just had more money, it'd change everything, wouldn't it? Or maybe it's not more for you. Maybe it's actually less. If I had less obligation, that would change everything about my life. If I just weren't so committed to everything and, and I had to do this and I had to do that and had these people depending on me for this and that, it would just change everything about my life. I could live in peace maybe or maybe if I had less clutter in my house. If I could just get rid of all this stuff, it changed everything about the way we live at home or maybe it's less stress. Who doesn't want less stress? in their life. Or maybe it's neither more nor less for you, but maybe it's just better. If I only had better health, well, then I could enjoy life for years to come. Or if I only had better friends, then, you know, I could rely on them. Or if I only had better equipment, even. We took our kids at the end of the summer out to the lake and rented a boat and went inner tubing at least we were supposed to go water skiing as well the boat was supposed to include water skis and it did but we went to try the water skis so the kids could learn to water ski the the kid version skis were too small for them and the adult version skis were too big they couldn't wear either one of them and i thought well it's just a matter of size for them and then i got in the water and tried to ski with the adult skis and i'm a pretty good skier i think at least i was 20 years ago And after training a driver to drive the boat, who, for the first time, pulled a skier ever, and she did a great job, I got up on skis, and I realized, these skis are so loose, I'm about to fall out of them. I can't really show my kids what a great skier I am. (laughs) If only I had better equipment, everything would have been totally different. You know, the, the gospel says to us that there is something that actually fills in that blank. You know that? The gospel tells us you can fill in that blank. It's just not with something that the world expects or thinks or that we in our natural state desire. These Hebrew Christians to whom this letter was written in the first century wanted very much to fill in that blank. You know that? They wanted to fill in that blank. If only we had a different label on our heads, then we might be safe in this society that we live in. If only we had a different identity as a people, if only we had a different religion that we could claim, then maybe the Roman authorities wouldn't persecute us the way that it looks like they're going to do. If only they had something to fill in the blank, it would change everything for them. They were tempted to quit on the gospel as a result. And so this pastor explains to them that the one thing that actually does change everything They already have. He says to them, since we have a great priest over the house of God, it changes everything. Now, this is the the big point of this whole letter to the Hebrews. 
This is the big point of it. The fact that Jesus actually does stand between man and God. In other words, he is the great priest. The fact that he does that changes everything. And since you have a Redeemer, since you have a Savior, since you have a great priest, since you have Jesus, it changes everything. And this author explains that there's a a should, a could, and a will that follows along to fill it out. He says, because of this, you should draw near with confidence. Now, you may remember, earlier in the summer as we were going through Hebrews, John was preaching. We came to Hebrews chapter 4, and we read there another well-known passage that says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but rather one who in every respect was tempted, just as we are, and yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. He, he said that back in chapter 4. And then the letter begins to unfold in greater detail. As, as we've seen, it's a great study in Christology, the study of Jesus, the theology of who he is. And the writer explains much about Jesus, the who and the why and the what of him and all that he brings and that he does for us in the gospel. And then he arrives at the middle of chapter 10 and he says, therefore, and you always know that when a reading starts with therefore, you've missed something that came before, right? It's a, it's a word that leads into something from something. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near, let us hold fast, for God is faithful. This gospel confidence is reflective of a couple of things. One of those is the forever status that we have as Christians, as sons and daughters of the Most High. Now, the Bible teaches a doctrine that Christians call justification by faith. And if you're not familiar with that, uh, the Bible teaches, that's a word in, the, in Scripture, and it's a, it's a concept, it's a truth that the Bible makes a big deal about. And justification by faith is, is a fairly simple thing to understand, but it's a very difficult thing for all of us to comprehend and to, to apprehend and to live in because it's too good to be true. Justification by faith is the great exchange. It's the exchange where God takes our sin upon himself and he places his righteousness upon us. It's a simple thing. Very hard for us to believe and to comprehend. But here it's shown in a very remarkable way here in this heavily Old Testament uh, filled letter. He explains, we enter the holy places through the new and the living way that Jesus has provided by his blood, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, again, these Hebrew Christians in Rome, they were Jewish people who had become Christians. And so they knew their Old Testament, which was their Bible at the time, of course. They knew their Bible and they would have understood these illusions. And this is an interesting illusion that our bodies are washed with pure water. Now, on the Day of Atonement, which was something that happened in Old Testament times, once a year the priest would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple or the tabernacle, into the very presence of God. And only the priest could go. 
And there was all kinds of, of ceremonial stuff going on before he could even go in. He had to wash his body with water and then put on the proper garb in order to go into the presence of God himself. Only the priest could go. Nobody else could do it. Only the priest could do it. The point being, you can't come into the presence of God if all you wear is your own sin. You can't. But because the Son of God is the once-for-all sacrifice to God, you can. And that's what he's saying to his friends here. You don't need another priest. You have a great high priest who went in, and now you can go in because your bodies are washed. And you go in. Justification changes everything. That forever status that we have as sons and daughters of God clears your conscience, he says. Or it should. I mean, how often do you feel the guilty sense of your conscience? Many of you do more than others, and some of you don't often as often as you probably should. But he says, the forever status clears your conscience. It makes you able to draw near. And you, you do that. And, and there's a great contrast here in chapter 10. This is kind of a funny thing to see. In chapter 10, verse 1, which we read a couple of weeks ago, he writes this. He says, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, it can never, by the same sacrifices offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So in chapter, chapter 10, verse 1, He essentially says to draw near in the old covenant was a futile exercise. Even the priest had to do it every year and repeatedly again and again. It never actually accomplished what it was intended to accomplish. It was a futile exercise. But here in verse 19 in these verses, he's saying, actually, now I'm encouraging you to do it. Because of the justification that you have, you have confidence to draw near Without an offering. You know, we make offerings all the time to each other and to ourselves. And we're in an election year for politics this year, right? So this fall, there will be some elections going on. And the politician's first job with you is actually to get you to accept them. And do you know how they do that? They make an offering to you. That's what they do. Have you noticed that? And what do they offer you? They offer you all their strengths, all their qualifications, all the good things about them, all that's important that they have and the other guy or the other girl doesn't have. They don't tell you their weaknesses. They don't tell you anything about what's behind the curtain for them because they don't want you to see it. They shape and control their offering in just such a way as to get you to cast a vote for them. We do it too. We do it right here in this theater with each other on a Sunday morning. Don't we? I mean, we're always making offerings by dressing well, by working hard, by doing it right. Whatever it is, all the time you're making an offering. But the forever status you have means no more sacrifices. No more offerings necessary. He says, hold fast because God who promised is faithful. And he's the one who established this forever status. And that status happens in the, in the context of a together place. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Now, of course, he's talking about the church. He's he's saying, Christians, you, you should meet together. You should gather together because being a Christian is not an individualistic 
thing, which of course in our American culture makes it difficult to be a Christian because, well, you're supposed to be an individual and forge your own way in things and to say, but I could do these things by myself. And we all tend to want to do that. Why should we worship together? There are lots of reasons for that. And here in our church, we emphasize membership and take it seriously. I think it's very important to affiliate yourself officially with the local church and and to be uh, under the authority of the church and to share your gifts with the church. And that's an important thing. God calls us to a community. And also because the Christian life is a fight for redemption. And when you see others fighting the same fight, it enables and, and calls you and prepares you to fight the same. You don't just draw near by yourself. But I don't really need to push that here in this church. I mean, we've been meeting together in a theater of all places for 10 years. And well, if you've been coming here for uh, just a few years, you know, maybe, maybe you kind of like the idea of meeting in a theater without a fancy building or something. But for many people, this would not be attractive. You know, they'd rather just go to a, a large sanctuary. Um, and so, you know, for us to have been gathering for a decade in this case, I don't need to push that too much here, but maybe something that we need to recognize, the bigger challenge is the need for Christians and churches to work together for kingdom progress not just within the walls of one church building, but multiple churches together, even that don't necessarily totally see eye to eye. I had lunch with a a pastor of a church just up the street from here not long ago, and we'll get together again. And his church is very different than ours. It's not a PCA church. It's not a Presbyterian church. And they probably emphasize some things that we would not, and likewise we would that they would not. And yet, we wonder why people look at the church and aren't interested. What if they saw Christians drawing together, not necessarily to have a, a big, giant worship service where we might have some discomfort over theology, perhaps, in some different ways, but even just to serve the community and to build the kingdom in the community. Since we have Christ, it changes everything. You should draw near with confidence and do it together. But he says there's also a concern, he says, a warning a bit of here. He says, you could actually fall away in fear. Now, you may remember, again, to look back into this letter from chapter 6. There was that really kind of uncomfortable warning in chapter 6 where he explained that those who've once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and then fall away, he says, it's not possible for that person to be restored. And we looked there at the the kind of discomfort of that and wondering, you know, is it possible to unbecome a Christian? And should you worry about that? Should you lose sleep over that? Should you wonder? And we saw there that the encouragement of that is that we can persevere in the gospel. Why? Do you remember? Because God perseveres with us. God perseveres with us and causes us to stay with him. But he reminds us These people of the same thing here says you actually could fall away in fear because of deliberate sin. Verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Now, you have to understand, we all have sin. We all do. 
Scripture is clear about that, and your experience tells you it's true. Often we choose it, but there's always a struggle. A friend of mine not too long ago posted something on Facebook from Romans chapter 7, and he posted this verse, I desire to do what's right, but don't have the ability to do it, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. It's a great struggle. He posted this as, you know, this is my verse that I hang on to because I recognize this in my life. I struggle because I do what I don't want to do and I don't do the thing, things that I do desire to do. I don't think this is what the author's writing about here in Hebrews. I don't think that's what he means. I have another friend who's a mentor to me whose kids are older and grown, and he's a grandfather now, and, and he has talked about how when his, his two oldest were teenagers, he had uh, particularly difficult times with them and, and rebellious stages as they grew into adulthood. And, and he talked about how he actually got to a point of, of using their baptism with them as a means of disciplining them. And when they got to a point of of really hard-hearted rebellion against mom and dad and even against the church, his question to them was this. He says, does it mean this action that you're taking, does this mean that you've decided to deny your baptism? Now, that's kind of a treacherous question for a parent to ask. You know, you parents, younger kids, if they're baptized, you you don't want to ask them, all right, so you're going to deny your baptism? It's not a question you ask lightly. Because you don't want the answer, well, yes, forget it. I don't care that I was baptized. I'm going to do something else. Well, his children, his teenage children said no to that answer. They they would always say, well, no, Dad, that's not what I mean. I just, I wanted to do my thing for a while. They'd gradually see the wisdom of his ways instead. If they had said yes, and worse, if their lives had reflected that yes, Yes, I do intend to deny my baptism. Forget it. Throw it away. That's what he's talking about here. That's what this writer means. Deliberately turning away from the grace that you've known. In verse 28, he says, Anyone who sets aside the law dies without mercy. But how much worse for the one who has spurned the the Son of God, the grace that he's known in the gospel. And he goes on to say, The Lord will judge his people. In other words, God will distinguish between those who are His and those who only pretend. And the church is a visible church. We can see it. We can see who's here among us. You can go to any church and see who's there. It's a visible church. And yet there's an invisible reality about it too. There are those in the visible church who in the end will be shown to never have been a part of it in the first place. And so he offers a warning here to say, you know, look, this is a reality. You could fall away in fear. Now, this is a real obstacle to the skeptical mind. and It brings us to the, to, the, to the truth of an angry God, which he actually mentions here, a very striking statement regarding that. He suggests that, that such a person might actually outrage the spirit of grace. Well, that seems self-contradictory, doesn't it? I mean, how can the spirit of grace be outraged? After all, I want a, a God of love, not of anger. And what am I to do with this, this angry God? 
It's a funny thing that, you know, in our society, that's, that's a real hang-up for, for skeptical minds as they look at, at Scripture and see, you know, God actually getting angry. It's a funny thing because we live in a, a day and an age where anger is a very noble thing. You know, you just have to watch the news from Ferguson, Missouri to see that. Something happened there, and, and you know, we don't know the whole story of what happened. We get bits and pieces from the news now and then, from people we know who are there, who might say something. But we don't know exactly what happened. All sides are united in that they all want truth and justice. And we get angry because of tangential elements. And we, we, we as a society, we begin to turn and twist it into our own agendas of what really makes us fired up, whether it's race or authority or whatever it is. We don't really know all the details. But I would suggest that we don't get angry easily enough. We actually should be angry frequently. Anytime the life of a human being ends, we should be angry. I don't mean just by a bullet. But even in old age, when someone dies at the age of 99, having lived a full life, we should be a little bit angry because we're not supposed to die. That's not how God made us. He didn't make us to die. We should be angry. We should be angry when an unborn infant dies for whatever reason. It should make us to be angry. How much more so God? We should expect God to be angry as he looks upon a fallen world and even more so as he looks upon people who have claimed his grace and then rejected it. But, you know, God resolves his anger differently than we do. He does it in a much more constructive way than we do. We heard a little passage about that a while ago here in our worship service. We heard the Lectio uh, Continua, the reading from Numbers about that serpent that Moses held up on a stick. Maybe you've heard that story before. The people were impatient with God because they didn't think he was providing for them well enough. And they were rebelling in their hearts and their words against God. And God, in anger... And discipline sent serpents among them, and many of the people died. And, you know, we might kind of look at that and think, oh, man, how could God do that? That's kind of mean. He was angry at his rebellious-hearted people, and some of them died. Now, one of the big things about the book of Hebrews is that God requires blood. And that's something we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews 10, that that. Blood is a big part, especially the Old Testament, all the sacrifices, and, and Jesus died on the cross. Why does God require blood? What's the deal with that? It's a tough thing, but the fact is that reconciliation and forgiveness is impossible without blood. You know that? You do know that. You know, anytime someone has really, truly wronged you and whether they ask your forgiveness or not, in order for reconciliation to happen, someone has to suffer. It will either be them by you refusing forgiveness and holding grudges against them and holding it over their head, then they suffer. Ironically, you begin to suffer too. Or you absorb the suffering by forgiving. And the suffering that you absorb is refusing the temptation to dwell on it refusing the temptation to bring it up to them again, refusing the temptation to speak of it to other people, refusing the temptation to hold it against them 
that takes work. That takes blood on your part. It requires suffering. Now, Moses held a bronze serpent up on a pole, and the people looked up to it, and they lived. God held Jesus up on a pole, bloody and dead. And we now look up to that pole, and we live. The thing about the gospel is that on the cross, God doesn't require your blood. He offers his own. He offers his own. Is he angry at rebellion? Yes. Should you be angry? Yes. More so than you ever are. Indeed, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and everyone will. We all will. But will the blood of Christ lift you into his hands? Or will the blood of your own brokenness crush you under his hands? If only I had, it would change everything. This letter kind of makes all your answers trivial, doesn't it? Because you already do have. And because of that, he says, you will look back on evidence. Verse 32, he, he gives them encouraging words, kind of like he did in chapter 6. He does the same. He says, but that's, that's not you, friends. He does the same thing here. He says, but recall the former days. Remember the former days, friends. Now, this Hebrew church had started 20, 30 years before the letter was written. They'd been there for a little while in Rome, and this was not their first persecution to face. They had faced it before in their culture, and they were about to face it in a much worse fashion, history suggests. And this writer wants for his friends to hold on to objective memories. He wants them to look back and to see the fruit of faithful life. Remember, when you endured a hard struggle with suffering, he says to them, Ten or fifteen years before, the emperor Claudius had expelled all the Christians and Jews from Rome over some squabble that had arisen. And he just kicked them out, sent them away. And they lost property and and things that they had and lived with. He kicked them out. And, And he's saying, this author is, go back to that place now and see the fruit of a faithful life. Do you remember how you responded then? Can you look back? I want to ask you, can you look back? and see the place of your objective memory? Can you look back? I mean, I can take you back to a lot of different places, in fact. I can take you back to the place, the the very room, the very bedroom in southeast Dallas where I woke up early one Saturday morning at my grandparents' house and learned that my grandfather had died in that house while I slept that very night. It was the morning after my eighth birthday party, which he vowed to get to, and then he died. I could take you to the place. I could take you to the very place a few miles from here, where as a 10, 11, 12-year-old, I began to realize that I was bigger and faster and better than anybody else in my grade, and I could do anything, anything on a field or a court that I wanted to. I could take you to the place. I could also take you to a place a few miles from there where my 16-year-old sense of physical prowess and invincibility was mercifully taken away from me by an injury. I could take you to the very spot. It's covered in a building now, but I could take you to the spot. 
I could take you to the very place in Nashville, Tennessee, where a few years after that, a cute girl from North Carolina asked me if I would escort her to the homecoming dance. And I politely said no. That's another story. But I could take you also to the very place some years later where I asked that same cute girl from North Carolina if she would marry me, and she enthusiastically said yes. I could take you to the very spot where that happened. I could. I could take you to the very place in Houston, Texas, where an unlikely friend of mine unwittingly called me out of what would have been a very self-destructive situation for me. I could take you to the spot. And I could take you to the spot on the floor in the church in Macon, Georgia, where I knelt at my ordination service, having taken vows to gospel ministry, and other elders laid their heavy hands of prayer on my shoulders. I could take you to the very place where that happened on the other side of this country. I could take you there. You could take me to the place, too. I know you could. You could take me to the spots because your life, as you look back, reflects certain objective realities. Some of them are joyful, and you look back on them with relish. Some of them are painful, and you look back on them with tears, even. All of them are evidence of God at work in your life as he unfolds his redemptive history. This writer says the gospel works in this way. Recall the former days. Remember those days, friends, because you tend to forget what's behind you. You know, that's why we have this table here. Do you know that? That's why we come to the communion table. That's why we have baptism. It's why God gave us sacraments, these physical signs of spiritual realities, the spiritual reality of which we often can easily forget. But he he brings us to these tables and gives us bread and wine. He brings us to the baptismal font and gives us water. And he says, remember, remember this moment. This reflects a faithful life that I've given to you. And it enables you then to look forward to a faithful hope. Now, this past fruit of a faithful life is not the thing itself. Okay, so understand. As you look back on those things, it's just like the bread and the wine. It's not the thing itself. It points forward to something bigger. It's proof of what lies ahead in which you hope. He says it this way. He says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. So don't throw away your confidence. And then he gives this kind of odd reference. He cites the prophet Habakkuk. I mean, who can just cite the prophet Habakkuk? I don't know. This guy could. And, and he, he cites this, this passage from Habakkuk, and, and he quotes this, The coming one will come, and the righteous will live by faith. Now, Habakkuk was a prophet who wrote about his complaints before God in a circumstance in which he wanted justice, and he, both for God and for his people. And Habakkuk complained, Oh, Lord, how long will it be until you come and make things right? Oh, Lord, when will you come and do this? And God responds to Habakkuk saying, listen, Habakkuk, the coming one will come. And the righteous one, meanwhile, will live by faith. He points him forward. 
We look backwards, yes, but we do it so that we can turn and see forward to see forward and then endure today. At the beginning of the summer, we took a trip to Washington, D.C. I told you a little bit about it then. We went to some of the monuments around D.C. One of those that I was really eager to go to is the new one, the, the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial there in D.C. It's really just around the corner from the Lincoln Memorial. But we went to the, the MLK Memorial and, and toured around there and took a good look at everything. And on the walls in this memorial are inscribed a number of different quotations from Dr. King, from his, his uh, sermons, his speeches and such, and They're all profound and interesting. One of them, he said this. He says, We shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And he was right. He could see forward ahead. He could see that in the midst of where we are now in 1963, America... The arc of justice, is, it's, it's long. The arc of this moral universe. And we can't maybe see the good that's at the end of it. But I can tell you where the end of it is. It bends toward justice. From there, we walked on around the corner to the Lincoln Memorial, where the great emancipator himself is enthroned in marble in that majestic, big, rectangle building and overlooking the reflecting pool. And on those steps is marked the spot where Dr. King himself, a hundred years later, stood and delivered one of the most compelling speeches that's ever been spoken on the ground of this nation. You know it. Why does that speech live even today? Why is that speech so crucial to us? Why did it so move a country that it still moves it today? How did he do that? It was simple. He told them to look forward. You know, he told them, by looking ahead and by casting hope on what God will do, I have a dream, and it will be this way. It's not now, but it will be this way because the arc of justice bends in the right way. And what's coming is better than what you see now. You know you have a better possession, an abiding one. If you're in Christ, do you know where he's taking you? Are you able to look forward and see that? Are you able to look forward and see the new heavens and the new earth? Are you able to look forward and see the better possession that you have since you have a great priest? It changes everything. It does indeed. If I only had, don't even bother. Because you already do. You already do. Since we have a Redeemer, since we have a Savior, since we have a great priest, since we have Jesus, everything has changed. Draw near to Him. Look forward to what He has for you and endure. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that You would give us faith to believe this good news. Would you make us able, Father, to trust that you have in Jesus accomplished for us all that you require and that by faith we might live in his name. Amen.